Thank you so much, Parker and choir and orchestra for beautiful music today. I'm going to ask Libby Foray. She's the author of our book. She'll be tonight with a table discussion with Dr. Darren Davis. She wrote the book, What Mean Ye These Stones? And so, Libby, you didn't grow up in First Baptist Amarillo. You didn't grow up on the High Plains. How did you ever become interested enough in us to write a book about us? That's a great question. I grew up in Dallas. I went to Baylor University. And... As I was there at the university, I took a class that was the history of Christian art and architecture. And so we studied a lot of different Christian art, a lot of different Christian churches, architecture, mainly in Europe. But at one point, my professor put up pictures of First Baptist Amarillo on the screen. And he, he didn't tell us where the church was from. He just let us analyze it and look at it. And we all oohed and awed. And then he told us it was an Amarillo. And I, I just couldn't believe that. I, I mean, nothing against Amarillo, but I, it was just so beautiful. And then, then he told us it was a Baptist church, which I grew up as a Baptist. And I can say our churches are very nice. They're very dignified, but usually not like this. Um, just the colors, the vibrance of it all. Uh, I could tell that so much had gone into this, and so I was very intrigued. Well, what question in your mind occurred when you saw this European-style cathedral in Amarillo, Texas, during the Great Depression, no less? Yes, I learned that it was dedicated in 1930, so on the very edge of the Great Depression. And I just thought, how, how did they do this? How and why did this congregation in Amarillo create such a masterwork of art? Well, what is the answer to that question? How did... a European Cathedral happened on the High Plains during the Great Depression. What did you find out in your research? Well, to hear the answer to that question, you'll have to join us tonight. Oh. <laughs> At 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Thank you, Libby. Libby's very, very bright. As you can tell, she went on to do a master's at Princeton after she finished at Baylor. And, uh, you know, they asked, would we allow an honor student to come and do an interview and look through our archives? She went and looked at all the libraries in our area to determine how something like this happened uh, during the Great Depression. And it, she did so well. If you, it, she didn't make a dime on the book. First Baptist didn't make a dime on the book. But she will be here at 5 o'clock to sign books in the Welcome Center. There's some available for purchase if you'd like to purchase them. But her work was so good that Baylor University Press picked it up. It is the only ever published honor thesis from Baylor University, and it's well worth reading. She not only captures our history, you may have lived in Amarillo all your life. She captures Amarillo's history and tells you how this church fits into the greater history of the city of Amarillo. Thank you, Libby, for all the love and devotion you showed our city and our church, and look forward to the discussion tonight. Turn again in your Bible to the 73rd Psalm, Life Ain't Fair. She worried about all the things that all 17-year-olds worry about. She fretted about boys. She worried about her weight. She worried about not being popular. What 17-year-old girl doesn't worry about popularity? A few years earlier, she had fallen into the hands of the wrong crowd. She had dabbled in witchcraft, and she was fascinated about suicide. Her parents, Brad and Misty, moved her to a different school and started attending an evangelical congregation. She protested, but her mother made her go to youth camp with that evangelical church. And there at camp, her heart began to thaw and her eyes began to open. 
About two years ago, Dave McPherson, her youth minister, said she returned from that retreat as a believer in Jesus Christ. She was there in the library studying Shakespeare. The two student gunmen began the rampage. They approached her dressed in black trench coats. One of the gunmen pointed an instrument of death at her and asked, Do you believe in God? She paused, looked at his pistol, and said, Yes, I believe in God. And by the count of eyewitnesses, the gunman laughed, said why, and pulled the trigger before she ever had a chance to answer. She could have lied, but she didn't. She could have fudged or quibbled, but she didn't. She simply said, yes, I believe in God. Cassie Bernal made a clear statement of faith about her God, even when she knew that that statement of faith would cost her her life. How do you make sense out of something like that? How does God let that take place? She had just turned her life over to him. She had changed sides from the side of evil, from the side of good, from following Satan and now following God. And just when the parents are so proud, their daughter's newfound faith, it is that faith which takes their daughter away from them. How do we make sense of any of this? How is it that the equation is broken? How is it that good people suffer and bad people often thrive? Isn't God supposed to be good to his people how is it that we can't make any sense of the suffering around us? I know what you want. You want the same thing that I want. You want a world that has a hard and a fast moral equation. You want to be able to do the math. You want the evil to suffer. You want those who are good, those who are gods, to prosper. We want sickness and death and pain and suffering to visit the wicked we want happiness, joy, and peace, and life to reside with those who are following God and living as Jesus' disciples. That's the equation we want. But that is not the equation that we get. We come to a much more broken, distorted, confused equation. Let's face it. Good people do suffer. And evil people do prosper at least by what the testimony that we ourselves experience in life. In the play, a man for all seasons, Sir Thomas More's daughter's Meg. Meg is bitter about her father in prison. Like the psalmist, she could not understand why good people suffer. Good men like her father ought to be honored, not put in prison and scorned. And her father spoke about it to Meg and he said, if we lived in such a state where virtue was profitable, then common sense would make us good and greed would make us saintly. But since we see that anger and envy and pride and sloth and stupidity commonly profit far beyond humility and chastity and fortitude and justice and thought, perhaps we must just stand fast a little. We look 
at the text of Scripture. Here in verse 1 of Psalm 73, maybe this is the very pivotal point of the whole book of the Psalter. I'll show you why. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. The psalmist begins with what he thinks ought to be true about God, that God is good to Israel, that God is good to his people, that God is good, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Turn back to Psalm 1, the very first song of the psalm book, and you'll see how this becomes a pivotal play off the first song of the Psalter. In Psalm 1, it's the same assertion. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice the end of Psalm 1, verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 tells us there's two stories, there's two paths, those who prosper and those who perish. Those who prosper are the ones who actually delight, and thus saith the Lord God Almighty. They delight in the word of the Lord. They are like a tree planted, the psalm tells us, by the streams of water. They are fruitful and never withering. Verse 3, whatever we do, we prosper if we obey God's word. Not so, says the wicked in verse 4 of Psalm 1. Now, Psalm 73, turn back there, is pivotal because it comes back to the assertion of the very first song of the songbook. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to his people. But quite candidly, unlike the first song of the Psalter, this psalmist in 73 begins to bear his soul. He begins to admit his emotions. He begins to complain, to carp to God. The psalmist looks around at the broken world, the broken equation, and says, well, quite frankly, God, life ain't fair. Look at verses 2 through 14 of Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. They're fat and happy. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like humankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades to the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge of the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely I am in vain have kept my pure heart. I wash my hands in all innocence. For I have been stricken all day long. And chastened every morning. He looks around. The affluent, the cynical, the well-off, they're thriving. Their daily existence seems to affirm that either that God is good to the ones who do not obey his law 
or their existence affirms that God is basically irrelevant or doesn't care or doesn't have the power to do anything about it. It doesn't matter to God. They are described in this song in great detail of all the oppression they're bringing and how well off they're prospering. It shows us that the psalmist and speaker had studied with envy, with fascination, deep fascination, how the evil are faring so well. They're the people who take easy, happy trips to the beach and come home suntanned. They have no hang-ups with middle-class morality or attentiveness to the less fortunate. They are well-fed. Their bodies are cared for. They have self-love and full of self-indulgence. They live for themselves. They are not well-off just because they're lucky. Their comfort, verse 6, is based on their violence against humanity. It's based upon oppression. They're oppressing the poor and the weak, verse 8. They are skillful and adept at their self-interest. They're autonomous people who look only after themselves. They begin, the wicked, they begin to look like a viable alternative, another way to do life. Look at verse 13, what he says. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. He starts out by saying, God is good to Israel. God is good to those who are pure in heart. And then he says by verse 13, seeing the fat and happy, rich and wicked, maybe it's in vanity that I have kept my heart pure. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to his people. Surely God is good to pure in heart. Not so much, says the psalmist. Now the tone is different. Perhaps there's another way to judge life, says the psalmist, a superior way that is not judged by faithfulness, but rather by pragmatism. Maybe there's another road upon which we should journey. Clearly, the other way, it, it seems to work. He has eyes. He can see. It's raining on the just as well as the unjust. In fact, the unjust seem to this psalmist to be getting a few extra showers over their farms. How can it be so bad, this wicked way of life, if it produces good results? The saints are suffering, the sinners are succeeding, and the psalmist can't make sense of it all. Hey, God, what are we supposed to do? Sooner or late, all of us come to that moment of contradiction in our happy theology the good sometimes, they suffer. The wicked sometimes do prosper. And all of life is not in harmony. What starts out as a symphony becomes a cacophony and discordant. Notes dominate the score. Where is God when we hurt? Doesn't God realize everything is going backward here? Why doesn't God do something if he knows? Have we been wasting all of our time trying to live morally as a people of God? Rigorous lives of faith? Is our faith in vanity? Some years ago, Chris Christopherson made a hit record with a song called, Why Me? 
The lyrics begin, why me, Lord? Why, what have I ever done to deserve even one of these pleasures I have known? That is not the song of this psalmist. He's, why me, Lord? I've done the good things and I've got nothing. Why me, Lord? I want us to look at this psalm based on two words. The first word is problem. The second word is perspective. The first word is problem. The second word is perspective. The problem is as old as history. It's as old as the psalmist, and it is as contemporary as Amarillo 2024. The wicked sometimes prosper for a season, and the good for a season do suffer. We experience exactly what the psalmist experienced if we're true to ourselves. No matter what the television preacher may try to tell us, we realize the health, wealth, and prosperity, it doesn't work all the time, always. He didn't like what he saw, and it festered him. We start out with great hopes, and disease then cuts us down. We marry with joy, and then it ends in bitterness and divorce. We launch a career with great promise, but instead of rising to the pinnacle, we land up in the pits, and again, the promises don't always seem to be kept. Author Stephen Crane, in his poem, The Man, wrote, A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, the universe replied, The fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. So it feels with God. In other words, whoever is out there, whatever made this world, replies the maker. He's not interested. He doesn't seem to care. Life brought the psalmist to that point in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. The psalmist, like the health, wealth, and prosperity writers and teachers today, had come to the conclusion that God owed him smooth sailing. And those are the churches that grow, that pawn off the bad theology. We must never forget, after all, that God is God. God is not our errand boy. God is not a genie that we rub the bottle and he pops out and says, I will do whatever you want me to do. We do not send God on our assignments We are his servant. He is not our servant. And our reason to exist is to glorify God no matter what. And sometimes he performs miracles on our behalf. And sometimes he explains his actions in our lives. And sometimes his presence is so real, it is if we are face to face with the Almighty. But at other times, nothing works at all. And other times in our suffering and our sadness, we look and we say, and I would too, and you would too, like the psalmist, why, God? What's up with this? The equation is upside down. Why me? Why this? Why now? Sometimes we find ourselves located in God's waiting room, and all we can do in our suffering and our sorrow is wait. Wait on God. Wait on his answers. Wait on his healing. It's a matter. The second one is not only the problem, but the perspective. The psalmist has lost his perspective. What did he do? The psalmist did exactly what you have done this morning. 
The psalmist decides to go to church. He decides to enter a sacred space and to worship. He took his chances with those who were gathered and singing and lifting their mind and heart to God and acts of prayer and praise and worship. He cast his lot with the people of God. Look at verse 16. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of my children. When I pondered to understand this, it was trouble in my sight. I want you to underline the word in verse 17, the first word, until. There's the word. Here's the transition in the psalm. Probably the transition and all of the Psalter full of laments. Until. Until I came to a sacred space, until I entered the sanctuary of God, until then I perceived therein. In fact, his theology has gotten so twisted and so troubled, he says, if I don't straighten myself out, what am I going to say to my children? How am I going to explain to my grandchildren that God isn't good and, well, those who are faithful don't always prosper and those who are wicked aren't always taken down? I have to get this right in my mind and my heart because I must pass down to my children and my grandchildren the good theology. What will the children think, he says in verse 15. Then verse 17, until. It's a pivotal point in all the perspective of the psalmist. The holy place, this place. It offered another look and freed the speaker from the mesmerizing evidence of the prosperity of the wicked. Now, now he takes a longer look. Now he sees the psalmist of the first psalm is right, that the book didn't start out wrong, that the wicked really do eventually end up punished by God, and God really is good to Israel. God really is good to those who are his people, those who are pure in heart. Look at verse 19. They're going to be destroyed in a moment. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused out, will despise their form. 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. I was like an ox before you, God, but I got my mind twisted about seeing the prosperity of the wicked. He knows life is upside down. His fascination with the prosperity of those who are evil has twisted his theology. It has violated his relationship with God. He was stupid, he says. He had to be infatuated with the other way of life. Is the only real way is to follow God. Look at verse 23. He continues, nevertheless, I am continually with God Continually with you, you have taken hold of my right hand with thy counsel thou will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? Beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and the portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He realizes at this moment in the psalm that the present is not permanent. The world in which we live with a broken equation is not the eternal forever world when God restores all of heaven, a new heaven, a new earth, a restoration of all that is good. 
paradise. The secret of life is not what we have. The secret of life is whose we are. The secret of life is not what we have. The secret of life is whose we are. That determines our eternal destiny, what we become. It is not what we possess materially. He looks around and he's jealous at those who are cheating on the scales and oppressing the poor and taking them to court. They're prospering, but our strength is not found in our anger about life-breaking promises. But our strength is found, he says, in our nearness to God. How near God is to him. I love verse 25. Who do I have in heaven but you, O God? If it's not Yahweh, who is it? If it's not the God who creates, then who are you going to turn to? Do you have a better alternative when the equation is broken? When you see suffering in your life or the life of your family, do you have another alternative other than God who creates and saves, who sent Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again? In fact, God doesn't look from heaven and make mockery of our suffering, but rather God puts on skin and God comes on the cross and God says, it is a broken creation. I made it perfect and you have broken it, but I will take the suffering with you. He suffers with us. And for us, then the end, we have to share his glory. In church, things happen to us. You're here. In this sacred space, in this sacred room, we join the psalmist. And we realize that the present is not permanent when we come to church. We stop our lives on Sunday. We call time out. We realize the broken chaos that's outside of these walls is not reality. It's not God's plan. Suffering is but a moment. In London, in St. Paul's Cathedral, hangs a picture taken during the Blitz. It hangs in the nave. It's a dark sky, the smoke of all the bombs there over the city of London. But right in the center of the picture, there's a, a shaft of sunlight that pierced smoke and illuminated the dome of the cathedral. There's a tremendous parable there in that picture of the sunlight in the midst of the bomb clouds of darkness hitting the gold dome. Hold on, says the picture. Hold on. The sad present is not God's permanence. There's something that happens to us just like happened to the psalmist when we come to church. We realize that in reality, the promises of God are completely and absolutely adequate. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And God, you have taken hold of my right hand. You will keep guiding me all of my life. Because of the uncertainty of this life, because of the suffering we endure, we need a hand. We need a nail-scarred hand, a God who suffered with us to come and take our hand and guide us and walk with us through the suffering. He's been there. There's nothing you experienced that he didn't experience. Lord, at the end of the day, there's no one but you. He makes a personal decision to trust God in verse 28. But as for me, making my decision, the nearness of God, that is my good. 
I will make the Lord God my refuge. And I'm going to tell everybody, oh God, about your great works. Around us, we look at those who are cheating and taking shortcuts that are being oppressive. They're thinking about themselves. We find ourselves kind of drowning in this dreaded disease. We look around and someone who has a good life, they're cut short by disease. And here's a drug lord cruising around in a limousine. And we go, man, I can't make sense of this any more than the psalmist could. And he reminds us, yeah, I know life ain't fair but the present is not permanent. Trust God, says the psalmist. Go to the sacred space and join your voice with the voices of his people to get a new eternal perspective that ultimately the wicked never do prosper. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. That's the way he starts out the song. These are the wicked. Their life is always easy. Look how he changes his mind after he goes to church in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. Yes, the first behold in verse 12 made you think the wicked are prospering. The second behold in verse 27 calls to mind that those who have a distance from God will die. There's some of you who are suffering today. Some of you who are hurting today, some of you who find yourself in God's waiting room, and man, I don't blame you, and it's okay to do that. The psalmist did it. We can, when we're disappointed with God, I, I'm kind of amused sometimes people say, but I can't say that to God, as if God doesn't know what you're thinking anyway. You're going to hide it by not saying it to him? You're trying to, trying to have a covert operation against the creator? I don't think so. Like the psalmist, it's okay. Say, God, I can't make sense of my suffering. I can't make sense of the evil I see and the ease with which they live. And God will say, come near to me. I'm the only God that you have. And I suffer with you and I suffer for you. And I will guide you to share in my glory. The present suffering, broken, evil world is not permanent. And this space is a slice of the other side. Let's pray. Oh God, live streaming, watching on television, there are folks who are hurting, folks in this very great sanctuary who are hurting. There's some who could have preached the first part of that psalm and didn't know the second. Maybe they're finding themselves at the beginning of that song where they say, God, I look around and I hurt and I can't make sense of it and I'm in your waiting room and God, why? Maybe today they come to this great space, this sacred space, and they join with God's people in song and praise and the reading and proclamation of the word and they realize God is good. Stay close to God for the present is not permanent.